When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the show that brings you the five most compelling news stories in science. I'm Roan Hooper, podcast editor. And I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan, New Scientist Features Editor. Welcome to the show. This week we're joined by New Scientist Features Editor Alison George as well. Hi, Allie. Hello. Coming up on the show today, we're looking at what the latest research is showing about the effect of COVID-19 on the brain. We've also got music from Alaska, as well as our analysis of the heat wave in the Arctic and across the Pacific Northwest. And we've got an update on the finding from last year suggesting a signature of life in the clouds of Venus. But first, an audio announcement. Yes, New Scientist magazine is now available in spoken form. You can get news, features and comment and culture stories in audio form on our app. And if you go to newscientist.com slash pod 20, you can get 20% off a subscription. And that gives you the audio versions of the magazine stories as well. Yeah, what an offer. Newscientist.com slash pod 20 to get your discount. Before we get going, though, some breaking news. Uh, We've reported before how Jeff Bezos has been developing his reusable spacecraft to get to the moon. Um, And the first crewed Blue Origin flight, it's going to take place on July the 20th. And we've known for a while it's going to be Jeff Bezos, his brother, and a fee-paying customer. And there's one other place left on the flight, and that has just been given away. And to tell us about that, we're joined by science writer Sue Nelson. Sue, tell us who it's going to. Well, it's going to be the subject of my book, Wally Funk's Race for Space. So it is Wally Funk, the youngest member of the Mercury 13. And I can't tell you how I've been in tears this afternoon. I'm just thrilled, thrilled for her. (laughs) And I called her and I was the first to publicly congratulate her because she wasn't expecting the news to be out until next week. So I actually woke her up out of bed and she, she just went, Oh, oh, I thought that was next week. Oh, oh, you know, so she's um, absolutely, she said, I've been waiting a lifetime, honey. So for people who don't know who the Mercury 13 are, tell us who they are. Well, the Mercury 13 were 13 American female pilots who all passed the same physical astronaut tests as the Mercury 7, who were America's first astronaut crew. So if you've ever read that book, The Right Stuff, or seen the film, you'll know yeah. that it's it's those physical tests, it's not like a little medical. Uh, <laughs> these are extreme. No, no bodily orifice left untouched. <laughs> uh, 
um, you know, pushed to your physical limits. And this was what was amazing is that they, you know, they went for really well qualified pilots, uh, same as they did for the Mercury uh, 7. And um, the actual pass rate for the women was higher than for the men, as it happens. And a lot of those women, although it wasn't a NASA-funded um, test, the man who organised the test, Dr. Randolph Lovelace, he supervised and organised all the tests for the Mercury 7 for NASA. And so that's why they were exactly the same, taken at the same clinic in um, New Mexico, uh, the Lovelace Clinic. And those women did have have expectations that they would, and they were given that impression that they would eventually, hopefully, re- you know, represent a country and go into space. But this was the early 60s. And sadly, um, that never happened. It was just the wrong time. And so many of them have died now, unfortunately, understandably, because this was the early 60s. Uh, Wally uh, is in her 80s. She was born, she'll hate me for saying this, she was born <laughs> in 1939. So she's just turned 82. So yeah, it's an astounding, it's a wonderful nod to history. It's also a complete shock and plot twist to me <laughs> because, you know, her ticket was with Virgin Galactic. So goodness knows <laughs> how Virgin Galactic are feeling at this moment because Blue Origin have definitely scooped them, but it couldn't have happened to a more deserving person who has waited. She has waited a lifetime. Now, we had sensational news from China this week of a potential new species of human. Ali, uh, you've been reporting this story. Yes, it's um, a quite incredible skull that's been discovered in China um, of a type that's never been seen before. It's incredibly well preserved. Um, I actually saw, I met this uh, this skull uh, via Zoom. Um, it's informally known as the Dragon Man. Um, when I spoke to Zhijun Ni uh, at the Chinese Academy of Sciences who worked on this skull, it's got massive eye sockets that are almost square and it's in perfect condition, which is a very rare thing for these ancient human remains. The researchers think it belongs to a man who died between about 146,000 and about 300,000 years ago. Um, and then he was about 50 when he died. And it's huge. Um, the researchers who worked on it said they've never seen anything so huge before. Uh, yeah, it is an amazing thing. And what's really significant is that it's been put in our genus, isn't it? It's been put in Homo. So uh, we're obviously the only living members of that genus. But there's loads of extinct ones. There's Homo neanderthalis and, uh, and this one. Homo habilis. Oh, wow. This is the wow. skull of Homo habilis. Uh, it's a 3D printed skull. Isn't that cool? It's incredible. It's got <laughs> yeah. very um, pronounced eyebrow ridges, just like um, the Dragon Man skull. That but I look saw. how small it is. I mean, it fits in my hand. And the, the, the Dragon Man one is, is so yeah, much bigger. Was, was, I saw it compared to a human a Homo sapiens skull and it was much bigger. Yes. Yeah, so, so the really exciting thing is that um, this new skull might be a sort of another member of the sort of Homo uh, family tree. But um, it's uh, quite controversial that it's been called a new species because the analysis is really in its early phases. And also, what do we really mean by a new species? Um, in biology, yeah. that's usually taken to mean that, that different species can't breed with each other. But we know that there's an enormous amount of interbreeding going on between different types of human like us and Neanderthals and Denisovans. So a lot of people I spoke to said it was quite premature to call it a new species just yet. 
OK, so the analysis still has a long way to go and the classification is controversial. Um, but the skull itself has its own kind of amazing backstory, doesn't it? Yeah, it's something like out of a film script. Yeah. Um, it was discovered, uh, apparently, in the 1930s by a Chinese man who was working as a labourer for the Japanese who had invaded China at that time. And he was building a bridge near Harbin City in northeastern China. Um, and he discovered this um, skull in the river, apparently. And a few years before, um, an amazing skull had been found in China called the Peking Man, which uh, generated lots of attention. So the labourer thought this skull might be um, potentially a, a great discovery, and he didn't want to give it to his Japanese boss. So he hid it in a well, which is apparently is a common way, was a common way to hide treasures um, when you were in China. Then after and then he war, forgot about it until his... He didn't forget about it, but he didn't really want to admit he'd been working for the Japanese, apparently. Uh, okay. And he also, there was a cultural revolution and he had went back to his life as a farmer. Wow. And only on his deathbed in, I think, a few years ago, did he reveal the presence of this skull to his wow. grandchildren who found it in the well where he wow. said he hid it. And then a researcher got hold of it. And this is the first analysis that's happened. It only was known to science in 2018. It's incredible. What a story. And so it's this weird mix, isn't it, of archaic and modern features. And it, we know it's not Neanderthal and, and it's not Homo sapiens. It's not us, uh, a modern human, but it, it could be a Denisovan or a hybrid, could it? Um, because, you know, we haven't got any, we've got no skulls of, from Denisovans, have we? No. Well, we, well we, we might have. We have. We've got bits of them. We've, there might be another few skulls from China that might be Denisovans. There's been a jawbone found in Tibet. So, yes, this skull has got um, prominent eye ridges, as we talked about your skull, uh, your, the skull, the Homo habilis <laughs> skull that you showed us, uh, which is a primitive feature. But it's also got a very large brain capacity similar to ours, which is a modern feature. And its face sits underneath the top of its skull, which, again, is a very a modern feature. So this has got researchers who study ancient humans very excited. It might be the first time we get a proper look at a Denisovan face. Now it's time for a scientifically inspired musical interlude. So we're going to hear something from the American composer John Luther Adams. Yeah, I, I warn you, brace yourself for this. Um, I've just come across this guy. Um, he's been, he was living in northern Alaska for 40 years in the wilderness, and all that has infused his music. Uh, so let's hear a bit. This is called Circle of the Winds. like much I've heard before definitely <laughs> yeah it's really experimental uh, a lot of it's very minimalist um, it's from his new album called Arctic Dreams and that was yeah it was a track as I said called Circle of the Winds uh, the strings are supposed to imitate the Alaskan winds uh, and he's made sound installations using data from seismological and meteorological and geomagnetic stations in Alaska and transformed them into electronic music uh, this is not electronic music, but that's what he's done in the past. And I read a nice bit about him where he says he's a romantic, but he said, my romanticism is informed by quantum physics and the science of ecology. That's exactly what we like to hear at uh, New Scientist, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of romantics we are. Um, and the other thing to say about him is that the new album takes its name from a legendary book by Barry Lopez, also called Arctic Dreams. 
and it's a just a really wonderful piece of of nature writing about an ecosystem and a way of life that already then was disappearing when Lopez wrote this, um, and that was before you know people really started worrying about climate change. Uh, so let's play out with another little clip from the album. And many thanks to Cold Blue Music for allowing us to play this clip. Um, this one's called One That Stays All Winter, and it's another very uh, Lynchian-style track. tell you about the latest from New Scientist Academy, science courses for everyone. New Scientist's expertly curated online science courses allow you to learn from top scientists about hottest topics in science. And we want to tell you about two health-related courses. First, how your brain works and how to make the most of it. This expert online course covers the most fascinating questions about the human brain and has practical tips on how to take care of yours. And the latest online course from New Scientist Academy is Your Immune System and How to Boost It. From COVID-19 to the common cold, this course will give you the lowdown on how your body works to protect you and the actions you can take to help. All podcast listeners can get 20% off these courses this month by quoting the code PODCASTJULY. So that's uppercase, all one word, PODCASTJULY. Visit newscientist.com slash courses and use that discount code PODCASTJULY. Now we just heard the unique soundtrack to the Alaskan wilderness, and we'll stay in the general region to report on the heat wave that has been hitting the Arctic, but also the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, and we'll be hearing from our editor in Portland a bit later in the show. It has been quite shocking what's happening over there, isn't it? Um, You know, temperatures in Portland, Oregon reached 44.4 degrees Celsius, and in Lytton in British Columbia reached 49.6 degrees. So that's 121 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, uh, it's just horrendous, brutal. And yeah, we should say there are heat waves all over the place. Uh, The ones in the Pacific Northwest are getting all the attention. But, you know, all over the Arctic in Siberia, there are record temperatures in the Middle East and South Asia as well, though. 50 Celsius in southern Iraq and 52.2 in Jacobabad, Pakistan. Basically, this means many places are going to be uninhabitable for parts of the year. And even though we've known that sort of heat waves of increasing frequency and intensity um, were anticipated um, as as a result of climate change, seeing this happen is still really shocking. Yeah. Um, Someone from the Met Office said, without human-induced climate change, it would have been almost impossible to hit such record-breaking mean June temperatures in the Western United States, as the chances of natural occurrences won every tens of thousands of years. And we're seeing this with only 1.1 or nearly 1.2 degrees of warming. Current policies put us on track for a warming of 2.9 degrees by the end of the century. So this is only going to be getting much worse. And as you say, many places will become uninhabitable. Yeah. And uh, in British Columbia alone, we've had uh, 230 deaths, sadly, attributed to that heat um, already. Um, and then further north, I was reading about so another aspect of, of what this heat does. Um, I was reading about a village in Alaska on the Bering Sea coast. It's a village called Quigling Kok, which has been experiencing severe flooding in recent years as the permafrost melts and land subsides. And over the weekend, it's flooded again. The whole village flooded. So how are they coping with that? 
Yeah, I mean, they're, they're paddling around in kayaks, um, but they're going to have to relocate the whole village. Um, it's just not tenable to live there. Uh, and this is just one example of it's going to happen all around the world. Um, the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium has estimated that the cost to remove that village, to relocate it, is going to exceed $100 million. God, wow. I mean, just one example of the sorts of costs we're going to have to pay if we can't find a way to rein in carbon emissions. Yeah, I mean, and you know, 100 million sounds a lot, but uh, it's it's just going to cost much more. Like there's a Russian government study saying that the damage to critical infrastructure may cost $67 billion by the middle of the century. And 40% of all buildings in the north of Russia are already experiencing structural deformation. 40% of all buildings. Having just been discussing the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest, now we actually go over there to the heat dome that is Portland, Oregon right now, where Rowan caught up with our news editor, Chelsea White, to talk about Venus. Hi, Chelsea. Uh, How is the heat over there? Uh, Well, thankfully, it's a lot cooler today. uh, But here in Portland, we did really feel that that heat dome. It was intense. It got up to about 45 degrees here. That is brutal. Now, I don't know if this will cool you down at all, but we'll talk about Venus, which has a surface temperature of 460 degrees Celsius. Um, Last year, there was this big news from Venus about uh, a hint of a a signature of life in the atmosphere. So what is that? Remind us what it was. Right. So there were some signals of a phosphine gas found in Venus's atmosphere. And that was a really tantalizing hint at the possibility of life, because here on Earth, Phosphine is produced only by living things or some industrial processes. And we know that Venus doesn't have factories. So So that's basically one of the reasons why we've got three spacecraft right now heading out there to, to look at it. But what's happened this week? Well, a new study combined some lab experiments with observations from probes that were sent to Venus in the 1970s and the 1980s. And they measured what's called the water activity of the droplets in Venus's clouds. That's a similar way to measure things that's it's a little similar to humidity. So pure liquid water has a water activity of one and a perfect dryness is zero. And what they found was that the droplets in Venus's clouds have a water activity of 0.004. Right. So super. So really, really dry, basically. Uh, And obviously not good, not good news for any life forms that might be clinging on up there. No, terrible news. It's 100 times drier than the Atacama Desert, which is the driest place on Earth. And it's far too low for any life as we know it. Um, You know, human blood has a water activity that's equivalent to about 99.5% humidity. And most terrestrial plants will wilt at a water activity of 0.95. Some microorganisms can survive water activity down to 0.75. But in a place as dry as Venus's clouds, even the the membranes that hold cells together will start to fall apart. Yeah, so it's much too extreme, even for the most extreme extremophile that we know of on Earth. But like about these measurements, you know, they're done in the ancient past in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, can we rely on them? Or, you know, might they be, uh, you know, if we do measurements in different parts of the atmosphere, might we find more water, do you think? Well, it could be that the clouds on Venus aren't entirely uniform. So this study was looking at clouds from an altitude of about 68 kilometers above ground level down to 42 kilometers. 
And they chose that range because that is where temperatures are relatively reasonable for life um, as we know it. But it's not a given that life anywhere else would be just like it is on Earth. You know, life that adapted to another place might look different than it does here. But we may learn a lot more about the makeup of the atmosphere when NASA sends the Da Vinci mission, which is going to be a probe that will parachute through the atmosphere and send back information on what it's made up of. And while we've got you, Chelsea, the researchers here did a a similar analysis for water in the clouds of Jupiter, didn't they? What did they find? Yeah, surprisingly, they found there's an area in Jupiter's clouds that could have enough water for life. Now, that doesn't mean, don't get excited, that doesn't mean that Jupiter's atmosphere (laughs) contains living organisms or even that it is habitable. You know, there's lots of potential problems, including how those organisms would get any nutrients at all. But it does appear to be more habitable than Venus. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but that's a pretty bu- low bar at this point. Now, we've got a report in the magazine this week from Michael LePage on how COVID-19 affects the brain. Yeah, the studies are increasingly coming in showing that COVID-19 often affects the brain and can lead to profound changes in people's consciousness, cognition, personality and behavior. And these cognitive and psychological problems can last many months. Yeah, I saw a UK biobank study that found really worrying changes in brain structure in people who had even mild COVID. And one study found that they, f- they found replicating SARS-CoV-2 and it was in the, in the nerves, in the nose for up to six months in people who'd had um, recurrent or persistent loss of smell. So there's evidence that the virus infiltrates the brain and, you know, apparently it goes through the nose like this. The good news, of course, is that these kinds of cognitive um, and, and psychological and psychiatric conditions do seem to still only affect a minority of people who get COVID. And to some extent, this is what we would expect after a severe illness. So you see an increase in these kinds of conditions um, being diagnosed after severe respiratory infections or flu, for instance. But what's different here is how common this is. And that's the worrying thing. So in one of the biggest studies so far for COVID, researchers at Oxford University looked at the records of 236,000 people who'd been diagnosed with the condition with COVID-19. In the six months after they were first infected, 34% of those people were then diagnosed with a neurological or psychiatric disorder. And that's certainly more than you'd see after other serious viral or respiratory infections. And other neurological complications can include bleeding and clots in the blood vessels of the brain, strokes in other words, um, delirium, brain inflammation, peripheral nerve damage, which can cause numbness or weakness. Psychiatric disorders include psychosis, depression, anxiety. It's it's a pretty grim um, list of conditions. And do we know, you know, the mechanism for how the virus damages the brain, how COVID damages the brain? It's still not clear. And and researchers are really trying to get to the bottom of it. We do know so far, just from looking at the brains of eight people who died of COVID-19, that although the virus wasn't present in the brain tissue, there were major changes in gene expression in these people's brains compared with those who died from other causes. And that might be why you get factors crossing the blood-brain barrier, um, which might explain symptoms such as brain fog and fatigue um, that many people report. And Michael's piece in the mag points out that the loss of smell is a common symptom of COVID-19, and that's caused by direct infection of the olfactory nerve. There's loads more in the piece, and we'll post a link in the show notes. And to address that UK biobank study you mentioned, though, the researchers are not discussing the results yet. 
But what it is, Biobank is a long-term study that had scanned the brains of 40,000 people well before the pandemic. Since then, they've rescanned 800 of those participants, so 400 with COVID and 400 without. And as you said, the scans so far show a loss of gray matter in some parts of the brains in those people who'd been infected. But again, as we said before, other viruses can have similar effects on the brain without causing bad conditions. So it's really too early to say what long-term implications of this will be, You know, whether it will lead to increased risk for dementia and so on. Yeah, one researcher we spoke to emphasised that it will not apply to every COVID patient for sure. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to this week's guests, Alison George and Chelsea White. Remember, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you go to newscientist.com slash pod 20. And that gives you audio versions of Mag Stories too. Uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks again. And see you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.